Proverbs chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 this morning, as we make our way through God's word. Hear, my children, the, under, the instruction of a father, and give attention to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine. Do not forsake my law. When I was my father's son, tender and the only one in the sight of my mother, he also taught me and said to me, Let your heart retain my words, keep my commandments, and live. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget, do not turn away from the words of my mouth, and do not forsake her, and she will preserve you. Love her, and she will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. And in all you're getting, get understanding. That's our text this morning. If you look back at verse 3, we find that the first nine chapters, as we study uh, through the Bible, what Solomon is going to do, this is well thought out. We have a contrast between folly and wisdom in chapters 1 through 9. And Solomon here is writing to his son about his teaching. In verse 3, he calls his teaching doctrine. He says, my son, verse 2, I give you good doctrine. This morning I'd like to look at the necessity of doctrine. Matter of fact, that's what I've entitled this this morning, the necessity of doctrine. But with that much being said, in a nutshell, what is doctrine? How would you describe it? Well, I looked it up in a couple different types of dictionaries, and basically, religious organizations can have a doctrine. Doctrine is simply a statement held to be true. There, however, can be different doctrines. So this is important to understand because the doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ is going to be contrary to other doctrines that are out there. In uh, Mark 1, it says the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught as one that had authority and not like the scribes. Jesus attributes his doctrine in John 7 to his heavenly Father. Jesus answered and said unto them, My doctrine is not my own, but he who sent me, in reference to his heavenly Father. Now when the people heard, in Matthew 22, when they heard this, it says they were astonished at his doctrine. In the book of Revelation, we have, by this time it would be about 96 A.D., John would have been writing it, and when Jesus appears to John on the island of Patmos, He tells him to write seven letters to seven churches. To the church of Ephesus, he's concerned about a doctrine that has crept into the church, and he addresses it. In verse 2, he says to John to write, But thou, speaking to Ephesus, he says, This you have, that you hate the deeds, or the doctrine, of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So that's one thing they were holding true to, By the time we get to Pergamos, the doctrine had crept into the church. So now in verse 14, he says, I have a few things against you. I think he's talking to Pergamos here because you have those there that hold to the doctrine of Balaam. So here we have a teaching, something he did. It was a doctrine. Well, what did he do? Well, he taught Balak, the king of Moab, to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. This is right before the children of Israel went into the promised land. And this Moab king, Balak, hires Balaam to curse the Israelites so they couldn't make it into the land. Everywhere the children of Israel went, they were taking people out. 
So Balaam gets hired for the job, curse him, but he couldn't do it. Every time he tried to curse him, all that would come out is blessings, uh, how much God loved his people. He says, I can't curse him, but I tell you what, I'm going to give you a doctrine. I'm going to give you a teaching. Why don't you teach the children of Israel how you worship your gods? Bring your pretty young gals, bring them down, and show them how you worship, which is basically fornication, and that's what it tells us. He taught them to commit fornication. So it's a teaching. It was held as a a doctrine of the Moabites. So we can have good doctrine, and we can also have false doctrine in the New Testament. So that would be a simple definition. But as we look at the Bible, you need to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's always interesting to do a study on 316s in the Bible. And in 2 Timothy 3.16, we have the book that you hold in your lap this morning, contains doctrine. And it's under challenge today in the world in which we live. If you found it, in verse 16, this is one that we all want to put to memory. All scripture, Genesis to Revelation, is given by inspiration of God, and notice it is profitable for doctrine. Reproof, that means we're supposed to reprove. In order to reprove, you have to make a judgment. For correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What is doctrine? Doctrine is contained in the scriptures that we're looking at this morning. Now, as soon as you say that the Bible is absolute, without error, inerrant, and it's given by the inspiration of God, the second thing that's going to happen when you make that stand is that it's going to bring division. Doctrine brings division uh, because doctrine establishes absolutes. Jesus said the way that to heaven is narrow. Few there be that find it. He even says it's difficult. And so that's an absolute statement. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, there's no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. Well, that's in a doctrine. And Jesus is saying, I'm the only way to get there. Well, Doctrinally speaking, that's going to fly in the face of a lot of people who say, well, there's many roads that lead to heaven. Or I'm going to get to heaven because I'm a pretty good guy or I'm not that bad. And so on and so forth. But it's important for us, especially in the times that we're living, that you understand by taking a stand that you're going to cause division. Someone want to give me an amen at? It's going to happen. Uh, but it's nothing new. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 10. Jesus says as much. Never have I seen what's happening in the church today like I've had this last year. Never thought I'd be seeing the things that I'm seeing. But in Matthew chapter 10, uh, picking it up in verse 34, this whole misidea of, of that our God is a God of love, well, of course he is, but he's also a God of justice. You can't have one without the other. So Jesus says in Matthew 10, he says, I don't want you to think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword or division. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes will be those of his own household. And then he said, he who loves father or mother more than me, and I would add anything, 
Go ahead and fill in the blank. Anything that you love more than God is your God. Be honest about it. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And so here, the Lord himself is straight up about it. He says, because of my doctrine, there's going to be in your own family division. And some of you are sitting here this morning, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you're following the Lord and you want to talk about the Lord and they don't want to talk about the Lord. Holidays, especially Christmas and Thanksgiving, can be extremely awkward. And um, because, you know, uh, the 800-pound gorilla is in the room and it's you. (laughs) And uh, you're one of those people. Uh, Just because of who you are. There will be division. Now, we need, to, we need to look at that and accept it for what, what it is. Let me give you a, current, a couple current issues in our society today that are causing division, politically and also in the church. This last week, the United States Supreme Court just judged in favor of same-sex marriage in all 50 states. Now, whether you understand it or not, this is a doctrine that's been established. It's a law. And this doctrine is contrary to the doctrine of God's word, which declares and defines that marriage is between one man and one woman. This has caused division. And I might say it should cause division when, this, when these sort of things happen. This happened in the early church. Paul had to deal with it. And I mentioned it last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul's writing a letter. He's not there. But the word is out, and everybody in church knows about it, that this uh, guy is sleeping with his mother-in-law. And Paul heard about it, and he says, I'm not there. He says, you guys aren't grieving or mourning, but you're actually puffed up and consider yourself being pretty liberal, not up-temp. He says, I'm not there, but I judge. That's the word he said. He says, I judge the matter. This is what you do. You take him, you turn him over to the devil, pretty heavy words, and pray for the destruction of his flesh. And this is the most important part, that his soul might be saved in the day of the Lord. You see, Paul loved this guy enough to know that you cannot continue in that lifestyle and uh, think that you're saved or going to heaven. When somebody repents of a sin, it means you turn from it and you no longer engage yourself with it. Somebody want to say amen to that? It doesn't mean we slip up once in a while. Of course, we are. I'm talking about a lifestyle that, is, that goes on unchecked and unrepented of. And if it continues, this guy's fooling himself. He's showing up every Sunday in church, and he's sleeping around and thinks he's a Christian. And uh, the good news is Paul said, it grieved me. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to write the letter. In uh, 2 Corinthians, when the guy does repent, he came to his senses. Now Paul has to write another letter and say, lighten up on this guy. Bring him back in. He repented. Don't you remember, and such were some of you? You were like that. And Jesus forgave you. So now he's repented. Now you go out of your way. You love on this guy. You make him him feel right at home. And uh, consider yourself. Matter of fact, the Bible says, uh, when a guy stumbles, it says, those of you who are spiritual, you go to him and you restore him. In a spirit of meekness, consider yourself. Consider that you're absolutely no different. So you go to him, you love on him, and you try to show through God's word the importance of repentance because if you do not, 
These, there's a list in 1 Corinthians 6 and 9. That list, homosexuality is just one of them, right next to fornication and adultery and lying and stealing. All the same, it's just a sin. And if it's continued in, uh, then uh, they will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Um, Just recently, and it's making news big time, uh, even this week, just recently Willow Creek Pastor Bill Hybels had a gay man as a worship leader whose name is Darren Calhoun. Now I just named a church, the pastor, and his name. And I'm going to tell you why in just a minute. Um, And this last June 11th through the 13th, he made himself down to a conference uh, in Georgia whose sole purpose is to get the church to accept same-sex marriage in the church. That's what he spoke at. Now it's making... um, the headlines is that when he was down there, he was wearing a T-shirt that said, I'm sorry. And I didn't jump on that right away. Um, I thought, well, maybe we could be reading this guy wrong, and he's sorry for what he did. Uh, but then it showed a picture of him standing with the explanation of what he's sorry for. And you could Google this and find it. His name is Darren Calhoun, and just put, I'm sorry, and it'll tell you what he's sorry for. And the statement next to it, he says, I'm sorry, and I, re- po- I apologize to the lay and lesbian community for the way that the church has treated you. He's openly gay. He's a worship leader um, at uh, Willow Creek. And uh, having said that, uh, this should cause division, and it should cause division. This, there should be a, a time where... The church stands up, and uh, I need to clarify something here between the church and the world who are non-believers, because Paul does. And Paul, when he's writing in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, he says, I'm not talking about judging those who are outside the church, what lifestyle they live. He says, God's going to judge them. But for those that claim to be Christians that are in the church, then it's your job to judge them and point out their error, and it's the most loving thing that you can do. They don't realize, because of the culture, because everybody's doing it, that it's acceptable. It's not acceptable. And they're gonna have to stand and give an account to God unless they turn from um, their sin. Now, um, why did I name names and uh, churches and pastors? Well, I'll tell you why. Because Paul did. I'd like you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'll give you a little chance and time to get there. To me, it's crazy. If it were to warn people against false doctrine and false teaching, it's impossible to do unless you name names and churches. If we are to judge within the church, again, if they're non-believers, they're going to stand before the great white throne judgment. The Bible says the books will be opened and they will be judged every man according to his works. Now, the church, on the other hand, has a responsibility to judge within itself, if they're, especially if they're well-known and influential. And Willow Creek definitely is well-known and uh, influential. Some might think we shouldn't name churches or people's names, but Paul certainly does here. Let's pick it up, verses 1 through 11 in, in 1 Timothy, where Paul says, an apostle of Jesus Christ 
by the commandment of God, our Savior, and our Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. To Timothy, my son, uh, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, I want you to remain in Ephesus. Notice that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith from which some have strayed, having turned aside to idle talk. Desiring to be teachers under the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and the insubordinate, for the ungodly, for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers, of fathers and murderers, of mothers, for manslayers, uh, for fornicators, notice, for sodomites, part of the list, for kidnappers, liars, those who perjure, and if there is anything contrary, notice, to sound doctrine. The list is contrary to sound doctrine. According to the commandments, or the gospel, the blessed God which committed to my trust, and then picking it up in verse 18, he's, Timothy's sort of um, being mentored by Paul. And we read in verse 18, now he's going to receive a direct charge by his mentor. Verse 18, he says, Timothy, I charge you. I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith, which have suffered shipwrecked, and now he names names, which are uh, Hynemius and Alexander, who I delivered to Satan that they might learn not to blaspheme. So he calls a couple guys out. He tells Timothy exactly who they are so that Timothy can be charged to warn others, look out for these two. They're teaching things that's not as contrary, actually, to sound doctrine. This week, because we were traveling last week having way too much fun, fellowship, food, and some of the most unbelievably breathtaking scenery that you could possibly imagine. But this week, because I was gone, I was going to do this last week, I'll be sending out a letter to all 82 Willow Creek Association members There's 82 churches in the state of Wisconsin, along with a letter, a book, I should say, that was written by Ruth Christian and her fellowship here called Love Flowed Down. And I'm also going to send out a copy of Paul Smith's book called The New Evangelicalism, which basically shows about 25, 30 years ago where we started to get just a little off track. And that's all you did. You know, just get a little off track. If you're going to plot a course, we got on a plane yesterday uh, in Mesa, Arizona. Two hours and 59 minutes later, we landed in Appleton Airport. And um, they're guided by instruments. And uh, you could just be uh, one degree off at the beginning, but after a couple thousand miles, that one degree gets really big. So you, here's what happened to the church. 
it got off just a little bit away from sound doctrine. Now you let time go by, and things that are happening in the church now, we wouldn't even have thought of 20 or 30 years ago. Not in the church in America. Not Bible-believing churches. Certainly not in our own ministries, Calvary Chapel. But yet we're seeing it. Uh, straying from, erring from, just getting a little bit off. And that's why the charge Paul leaves to Timothy. I charge you, Timothy. You have to stay the course. You can't compromise. There is a necessity for sound biblical doctrine. It does define as absolutes, and yes, it will bring division. Everybody with me so far? Okay, so that'll be going out. Let me just say this. I take no pleasure in doing it, none whatsoever. It grieves me just as much as Paul said. You know, it really grieved me that I had to write that letter back in 1 Corinthians 5. I found no pleasure in it at all, but it was necessary. Otherwise, leaven would have entered into the church if I, if I didn't do it. But he says, but I'm happy now because the guy repented. And uh, he's back in fellowship, so it served its purpose. But he says, don't think I'm happy about doing it. I have better things to do than, than try to wake up the church and get back to the, to the Bible instead of, once you, once you open up the Pandora's box to this issue and you compromise with it, then anybody's interpretation is as good as the next guy's. Either it's all this or whatever you want to add to it. And once you do that, your opinion is just as good as anybody else's. So let God be true, and let every man be a liar. This is his word, this is his doctrine. I can't add to it, or I can't take away from it, because the second I do, I am in big trouble. Amen? And so are you. So, uh, having said that, um, copies of the letter, those of you who know that I'm doing this or are curious about it, um, people on the trip were asking, I found out that we got people watching us all over the place from Kansas and other places around the country. And they asked for a copy, and I told them I'd give it to them. Next week out on the, the, the fellowship hall table, if you want a copy of my letter, you're welcome to it. Um, no, but know this, this will also cause division, and having said that, even hatred. And um, that goes with it, but I want you to know something. Turn to John 15 that the Lord actually said, when you do it his way, and he talks about the narrowness of the way of the gospel and the doctrine of Jesus Christ. In John 15, picking it up in verse 18, everybody likes to be liked. I like to be liked. You like to be liked. But when you get into the absolutes and you get into areas where I simply cannot compromise, then you have to say something. I had to say something this week to, to um, um, our, our bus driver who was, thought she was a Christian. And she had her boyfriend along with her. And um, this is a hot-button topic that I've been talking about. And um, it was ongoing. Everybody in the group knew about it. So I had to take 10 minutes, and I said, I, I just need to talk to you guys for 10 minutes. And I did. And I said, you're calling yourself a Christian, and yet you guys are living together. Kids on a trip here, and uh, they know what's going on. And it was awkward at first, and it was uh, not easy to do, but it was the most loving thing I could have done. I tried to explain to them, if you think you continue on like this, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, you're, you're deceived. I don't want you to think you're going to heaven right now. You're not. 
would you please perfectly consider what I'm saying? And um, I think it went well. And I'm praying that the Lord takes those seeds and those words and they seriously consider it. She confided in, she, in me. She said, you know, I wake up convicted every single morning. And uh, that's what she was going through. And living under that conviction, knowing it's wrong, but continuing in it anyway. So doctrine, uh, here Jesus says in John 15, if anybody hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. You are going to be hated for taking a stand. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world is going to hate you. Remember the words that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you keep my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you, notice for my name's sakes, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, there would have no sin, but now they have seen and also hated me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled. Notice this is important. He's quoting scripture. This all happened because it's a prophecy from Psalm 69 that they hated me without a cause. I'm sure there's people that hated Paul, that when he had to deal with the issue in Corinth, but they hated him and they really did not have a cause for doing it. Well, um, Robert, you sent me an email this week. Um, Bob Meyer, Robert Meyer is a part of our fellowship. On uh, July 2nd, he, he wrote an article published in Renew America Um, and it's called Marginalizing Christianity by Quoting Jesus. And Bob just did a great job pointing out the absurdity of not judging. He says, people judge all the time. I would encourage you to Google it and read it. Maybe we can get a a copy of it and put it next to our our table out here. But uh, for those that are saying, oh, you Christians shouldn't judge, well, Bob wrote this great, excellent article for Renew America. And uh, with Bob's permission, I'm really putting him on the spot now, <laughs> we'll let that be uh, out there so that you can read it. It's online, so I can't imagine he wouldn't. So I'll give him 20 bucks, and then he'll let me do it for sure. <laughs> okay. But it was well written, Bob, and um, it, re- it just really talks about the absurdity. Of course, you know, there's, uh, people are going to be pulled over for drunk driving, and the cop's going to make a judgment call. He's going, to make, he's, he's going to judge. 400 people are supposed to die this 4th of July weekend. And they're there to try to protect people from drunk drivers. So how do you know a drunk driver? Well, you've got to make a judgment. Put your nose here. Walk straight here. And uh, if you don't make it, then you're going downtown. You're going to take a ride. You're going to get a ticket for DUI. That's judging. And then they have to stand before what? A judge. Who's going to do what? Make a judgment. So the absurdity of saying, oh, the church shouldn't judge. No, the Bible says a spiritual man judges all things. And Matthew chapter 7, when you quote that one, is taking it out of context. You have to read the scripture in light of all what it teaches on this particular 
issue. Now, the doctrine calls the sin of homosexuality the same as fornication, adultery, being a thief or a liar. And uh, those uh, who continue in these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. What's the most loving thing you can do? Tell them the truth. Well, they might not like me afterwards. Well, they probably won't. (laughs) They'll probably hate you for a while. They might be really mad at you for a season. But if they get saved and go to heaven, they'll be thanking you forever and ever and ever and ever. So my second example, switching gears here this morning, is the example of the doctrine of creation versus evolution. Last week, uh, we had a conference here with Jay Siegert and Rick Oliver. And we were able to catch some of it. It was really, really good for those of you that were, were here. Uh, some of us were on a creation tour of uh, the Grand Canyon with um, uh, Chris Quintana from Calvary Cypress. His, some of his folks came along. And Calvary Appleton, we were with Russ Miller and Joanna, his wife. And we took the tour called the Grand Staircase Tour. Um, we started at Zion. Uh, which is a trip by itself, if you've ever been to Zion National Park, uh, to Bryce, and then both the south and the north rims of the Grand Canyon. Um, We will have a case of these books here by next Sunday. We're already scheduling for next year's trip, and I'm just going to give you um, just a couple people's comments on being on a tour with, with Russ. I'll just read three. They're short sentences. This is from Thornton and Ruth from New Mexico. It says, our trip to the Grand Canyon with you was fantastic. The best part was how you brought the geology and scientific facts back to the word of God. And then we have Dan in Arizona. At 10 a.m. in the morning, this is what he says. Russ, my mother got me to come on your bus trip, but I am an avowed atheist, and I have no interest in your God. 5 p.m., Russ, this day has changed my life. Now I know that Darwin is a lie and the Bible is true. We had people just listening. My favorite part was watching people who weren't part of our group. They'd they'd hear that he was a Christian and roll roll their eyes, one of those things. That's how it started. Then after five minutes, they're like, hmm, that makes sense. And then if they stayed for the whole thing, their jaw was dropping because of of the overwhelming evidence of a worldwide flood versus contrasting millions of years of evolution. You can't spend a week with Russ without having your mind completely changed. I don't care how uh, uh, dedicated you are to evolution. You will change your mind. All right. Um, Judy got through a good portion of the book on on the plane, and um, uh, we will have a case of them here next Sunday, and I really encourage you. I'm sure we'll go through those, and we'll be looking, be looking for more. Um, but Paul calls evolution really the doctrine of demons. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. So we're going to be back in Timothy, but this time in chapter 4. There is a real devil, and how else better than to confuse people than to come up with doctrines that are contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 6, 
evolution is the foundation of biblical Christianity. Can I say that again? The doctrine of creation is the foundation for the Bible. And if, if it can be explained away through millions and billions of years of time that you evolved from a rock, <laughs> um, then you can pretty much leave everything open for debate and discussion. But Paul's writing to Timothy in verse one of chapter four says, now the spirit expressly says that in what? The latter times. Some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and the doctrines of demons. Evolution is a doctrine of demons by Lucifer himself. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared uh, with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, I look at that as uh, Roman Catholicism, commanding to abstain from food which God had created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Uh, Peter had that experience um, that the Lord showed him if all things are good to eat, if they're prayed for. Verse four, for every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if received with thanksgiving for it is sanctified by the word of God and in prayer. Now, if you instruct the brother in these things, this is what we're doing this morning, we're talking about doctrine, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of notice, good doctrine, which you have carefully followed. But he says, refuse old wives' fables and exercise yourself rather to godliness. Bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable in all things. Promise of the life that now is and that which is to come. This is a a faithful and true saying. For to this end we both labor, we suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God who is the savior of men, especially for those who believe. And then he goes on to say, these things teach and exhort And uh, verse 13, till I come, give heed to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. All right, so what can we do? Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. Make our way back to 2 Peter. Russ was referring to this often on our trip. First five verses. If there's true doctrine, then there's false doctrine. If there's true teachers, then there's false teachers. And we're told here where we actually are given a warning in chapter two, verse one. It says, but there will also arise false prophets among the people, even as there were false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Well, one of the biggest lies ever perpetrated is that of evolution. And denying the Lord who brought them and bringing on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways. Uh, Russ was saying nine out of 10 kids brought up in Christian schools by the time they get to uh, college, uh, their faith is overthrown. I was watching Rick Oliver. I caught his session on Saturday. And I especially appreciated his transparency and his honesty when he said before he got saved that he, went, he wanted to know who were the Christians in his science class. 
and then he would go after them. He went as far as to say if they deserved to be, he'd give them a C just because they were Christians. And when they'd raise their hand and say, who's a Christian? And he'd say, you won't be by the time I'm done with you. So they're, they're, they're out there with another doctrine with the purpose of deceiving and actually undermining their faith. It's a good thing Rick got saved. You know why? Jesus said it would be better for somebody that undermines the faith of one of my little ones. It'd be better for him if he was drowned in the deepest sea with a chain around his neck than to have to stand before me on judgment day. That's what the Lord has to say about it. If you mess with one of my kids who has faith in me and you undo that faith, you're going to stand before me someday, buddy, and you're going to give, give an account. He said, better that you never, never lived at all. Men will follow their destructive ways because the way of truth will not be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words for a long time. Their judgment has been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Notice now, God will judge. He did it in the past. He'll do it again. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Notice, and he did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. He did it before, and I believe we're ripe for judgment. He's going to do it again. Turn to page of Second Peter chapter, or go to Second Peter chapter three, verses one through seven. He says, Behold, I now write to you the second epistle, in both which I want to stir up your pure minds by way of reminding you about something. What does he want to remind us of? That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandments of the just apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing this, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Mocking the second coming, mocking the rapture of the church. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Jesus says as much. Right before I come, it's gonna be like the days of Noah. People will be eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. Everything's the same, day after day, same old thing. But this they willfully forget, verse five, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed, it perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which now exist, are kept in store by the same word, reserved for fire until that day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. It's not going to be a flood again. I think if the Lord had to say this, that's why he put a rainbow. I think every time it rained, people would have freaked out after that. So what does he do? First rainbow that we ever saw. And I'm flashing right now because our first night at Zion, there was a thunderstorm that came through, and here's this beautiful rainbow just over over the mountains there. And um, unfortunately, that's a biblical one. And unfortunately, the counterfeit and lie is the color of our White House about a week ago, also colored as a rainbow. And can't you see just the enemy messing with this? That's what he's doing. He's taking it and counterfeiting it. Here's the promise. And so what does the enemy do? Twists it around, makes it blasphemous. And that's just the way he is. He's the deceiver. 
So here we're told that people are going to willfully forget. And most of, peop- most of the people graduated from universities, um, you, you will be blackballed if you try to apply for a position, not even calling it creation, just intelligent design. You're marked, and you'll be excluded. You won't be promoted. You're out of, you're out of a job. And that's the enemy's turf. So what can we do? Well, here's what we can do. Paul leaves, and we read part of this before. Let's go back to 1 Timothy, and we'll wind up this morning with this exhortation that Paul gave to to, uh, his young protege, Timothy, 11 through 16. And I'll leave us with this, this charge this morning. Guys, we're living in perilous times and difficult times. Times when you take a stand for truth that uh, people aren't going to like you. <laughs> and, and I'm sure after next week, there will be many people who won't care for me in some circles. But then again, having said that, there might be those who, who's, who search the scriptures on their own. They go, you know, what he's saying is spot on. We need to make some changes. So here's Paul's charge to Timothy. Chapter 4, verse 11, we read it a little bit earlier. These things command and teach. Dwight, why are you giving us Bible study this morning? Because I'm told to. These things command. Don't suggest. Command. And teach. Don't let anybody despise your youth. Yeah, Timothy, you're a young guy. But you speak as the oracle of God, and don't you hold back, and don't you pull any punches. You tell it like it is. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word and conduct and love and spirit and faith and purity. What do we do till he comes? Till I come, give attention to what? To reading, to exhortation, and what's the next word? Doctrine. Give heed to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by the prophecy, laying on the hands by the presbytery. And then I want you to meditate On these things, give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in so doing, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Pastor Chuck, in one of his Chuckisms, says, if it's new, it's not true, and if it's true, it's not new. Truth is truth. It doesn't change. And uh, this book doesn't change. It's the same yesterday, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever and ever. And God holds this book that you have in your laps this morning higher than he holds his own name. Heaven and earth is going to pass away, but not this book. And from this book, we have an understanding of good doctrine. Paul to Timothy, Timothy, good doctrine. Solomon to his son. Proverbs, we're in Proverbs right now, chapter 4. And so Solomon to his son says this, for I give to you good doctrine. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll close in a word of prayer this morning. Lord, we live in difficult days. We're having a deeper understanding of when we take a stand, we shouldn't be surprised. They said if they hated you that they would hate us also at times. But yet, Lord, for those of us that don't want to compromise in these areas, We understand that some will be misunderstood with our intentions. But help us understand, Lord, that we really only have to give an account to one person, and that's you. And help us not care about what people think. Help us care, Lord, what you think. 
And help us have enough compassion and assurance of what your word teaches on these two issues we talked about this morning, that we would stand upon them, that we would not compromise in any way, shape, or form, because people's souls really are at stake. So thank you for your word this morning. I pray for the families as they go out and fry brats and hamburgers and just fellowship with one another. Bless their time together. And again, Lord, those that are traveling or camping, just please be with them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.